Thank you, Caleb and band. Um, my name is Scott Dixon, and I'm a professor, Bible prof over at Cedarville University. And my wife, Sarah, and I are also members of UBC, have been for the last couple of years. And it, it's my privilege and joy uh, to help out from time to time uh, for the preaching. And today, I'd like to begin by introducing you to a friend I just met this morning, Betty Crunk. And uh, she's going to be telling a little bit, tell us a little bit about herself and her experience uh, with the issues of finances. But first, Betty, tell us about your family and your experience at UBC. Well, my husband Ben and I moved here in 2008. At that point, he was active duty Air Force. Um, we joined UBC in 2013. We'd been going to a couple of other churches, and when we visited this one, it was home. Um, since that time, we've been involved with growth groups, we've helped with greeting, we've helped with cleaning, we've helped with Awana, but we've also helped with Financial Peace University. We love helping people get control of their finances. Well, we have been talking, as you guys who've been coming know, about dollars and cents this month of May. Tell us how Financial Peace University has helped you with your own finances. Well, being military, we moved a lot. Um, in my husband's career field, we moved about every 18 months to two years. And the time had come for us to move from Biloxi, Mississippi to Maryland. And we had kind of done the finance thing like a lot of people do, where you just live paycheck to paycheck. And we bought what we wanted and figured out how to pay for it along the way. Well, we had talked to some friends that were buying a house in Maryland and thought it would be a good investment because resale was high. And we thought, ah, we're going to do the same thing. Well, we did a double duh. We didn't put anything down on this house. So we had a first mortgage and a second mortgage. Well, shortly thereafter, my husband got orders from the government to be deployed to Iraq. Just a few days before he left, we got a joyful letter from our mortgage company saying, we messed up. We didn't calculate your taxes correctly. So on top of your $1,500 mortgage, you are going to have an additional $500 plus dollars per month. I couldn't tell my husband. He had to keep his head in the game. He was going to war. I had to find my knees, find God, and find an answer. That's when we found financial peace. My husband came home in December and praised the Lord. I said, honey, I'm so glad you're home. Have I got some exciting news for you? Guess what we're doing next month? We're starting to teach Financial Peace University. And he went, what? What is that? I went, oh, we'll find out. We had never taken a class, but we decided that we were going to be directors. So we learned, along with our students, about the mistakes that a lot of us were making. We also learned how to correct them. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And since that time, we've led about eight different Financial Peace classes, both there and here in Ohio. And so it's been a great blessing to have financial peace when you get your finances in order the way that God wants them to be. So how does that apply to us today? Well, when we left Maryland, got orders to come to Ohio, we bought the house at the top of the bubble. We had to sell it at the bottom. We lost $100,000 on that house. We didn't have $100,000 to make up that difference but we had financial peace and we had a plan. And God in his mercy 
allowed us to figure things out and to come to Dayton and start working here, helping other people learn how to draw features. So what's gonna be happening on June 7th? June 7th, Monday night, June 7th, we are going to be meeting, we're gonna be starting another financial peace class here at UBC. It starts from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, the location we're not sure of at this point because it depends on how many people we have sign up to come. So we're just gonna have to kind of float with us for a while till we see who's coming. But it will start at that time and it will go for nine weeks and the cost, depending on how much you wanna do, they've got some different programs, there are different costs involved. Okay, if somebody's out there sitting on the fence thinking I'm not sure this is worth it, what would you say? Do it. <laughs> Do it, get control of your finances, tell every dollar where it needs to go, or it's just gonna go. If you're interested in joining our class, log on to the church website, look under the classes section, and then you will find financial peace. Click on that link, and it will take you directly where you need to go, or you can reach out to Ben and I. We're more than happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Betty. Thank you. Uh, and it's important for a church, right, not just to to look at scripture, to help us think through uh, our values, but also to give practical help uh, and make, take advantage of people uh, who have developed ways to help us take uh, charge of how we handle our finances. So uh, June 7th, Monday, runs for nine weeks. Uh, more, if you have more um, questions, go on the website and uh, look those up. Uh, another person who never had Financial Peace University who was concerned about his finances was a guy by the name of Diogenes. He lived in Greece around 300 B.C. Um, people called him Diogenes the Cynic, if you like that for a title. Uh, he grew up in a wealthy home. His dad was a banker. Diogenes went into the banking business. Unfortunately, there was a scandal and he lost everything. He was kidnapped by pirates, and he was sold into slavery. No wonder he was called the cynic. Uh, he escaped, so he had to decide what to do with the rest of his life. So if you are a bankrupt, kidnapped, former kidnapped person by pirate, former slave, what do you do with your life? Well, it's easy. You become a philosopher. And Diogenes the Cynic became a philosopher, and he also became homeless, because when you're a philosopher, you make no money. And he just wandered around, asking the question, what's necessary to live? What do I need? See, he, he, he had a cynical attitude about his fellow Greeks. He felt like they were addicted to stuff, to things, to pleasure. So he decided he would make a statement by the way he lived his life. Legend has it that the only possession Diogenes had was this large tub. And he would roll it around during the day, and wherever he stopped at night, he'd get inside and he'd sleep. That's how he handled life, and that's how he handled possessions. It actually is a major life tension. That's why you have things called Financial Peace University. How do you handle money? How do you handle wealth? What do you do with material possessions? And it's still a struggle. A few years ago, I, I came across an article entitled, What to Do When You're Bad at Money. Oh, I read on. And this writer said the problem with money is that we often have an emotional experience tied to our money. She called it a money script, a money personality. 
Evidently, she had interviewed this guy who was a financial psychologist. That's an interesting uh, profession. And, and this financial psychologist, it wasn't a Christian article, he just said, hey, there are four money scripts we tend to follow. Some people follow the script of money vigilance, where you're super careful with your money. Others follow the script of money avoidance. When you convince yourself that money isn't important, so you shouldn't care about it. That's Diogenes. A third is money status, when you equate self-worth with your net worth. And then lastly is money worship. That's when you think you have, that having more money will solve all your problems. The issue of money, the issue of possessions, um, it's not new. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about it, and that's what we've been doing this month in this theme series called Dollars and Cents. Two quotes I jotted down from Jason's sermons. Number one, you can't please God with your money unless you know God's position on money. Number two, if we want to live rightly with money, we must believe rightly about Jesus spent a third of his parables on issues of wealth and spirituality. Money, you see, in itself, it isn't bad. And it's not good in itself. But it easily magnifies. It amplifies what's in our hearts. So what the Bible says about money will hit you right in the mouth. I want to look at at one of those scenes with Jesus today. T turn your Bible to Luke chapter 18. This is not a parable. This is a, a real-life episode, um, discussion that Jesus had with one of the seekers that would often come to talk to him. Luke 18, found starting in verse 18. Luke 18, 18. Pretty simple. And if you could, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Scripture? We're... We're looking at the episode of the rich young ruler. Luke 18, starting at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Don't miss the very basic question that is. And Jesus said to this rich young ruler, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And the rich young ruler responded, he said, all those I've kept from my youth. And now when Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, there's one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Now, when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, he, he added, he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
in the crowd, they spoke up. Those who heard it, they said, well, who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and, and you can be seated. Uh, this very um, popular story, really, there's just two, two observations I want to point out. Uh, the, the rich young ruler's emotion, and then Jesus' response. The rich young ruler's emotion. Um, you know, it, it begins with a very basic question. Uh, how do you inherit eternal life? But eventually Jesus gets to an answer the rich young ruler wasn't expecting, right? Sell all you have and distribute to the poor. And, and in verse 23, Luke says that the rich young ruler became very sad. Now, now I, you need to understand that that word is a very intense word. It, it's not just a frowny, one-tier emoji word. It's the same word describing Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he was so upset that he was literally um, sweating blood? He, he, he was sorrowful into death. It's the same word in that passage that's used about the rich young ruler. He was crestfallen. He, he was devastated by what Jesus said. But then, what is Jesus' response? You see, what's interesting is that Jesus usually is very responsive and open to people who come to him asking those kinds of questions. Genuine seekers. And, and the rich young ruler does seem to be spiritually open. He seems to be a seeker. But Jesus, in this case, he turns him away. And he turns him away with that shocking declaration. Give everything away. Sell everything. What's happening here? There just seems to be something underneath that, that we're missing. And I think it's this. Jesus is not just addressing the rich young ruler. He's addressing a cultural narrative of his day. A, a set of assumptions, of beliefs that the average person in that day carry and the rich young ruler manifests that he exemplifies this and here's 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 the narrative it's that riches equal a blessed life riches equal a blessed life that was just assumed if you're morally good god will bless you conversely if you're not blessed if you don't have a lot of stuff there's something wrong here that, that was the whole book of job if you go back to the Old Testament, was asking that question. Jesus is asking the rich young ruler to give up his greatest testimony to his moral life. Did you see the reaction of the crowd, by the way? Who could be saved if a rich person isn't? That was just a belief that they all had. See, they believed wealth was a sign of the blessed life. We have our own cultural assumptions. We believe riches are a sign of the good life. You see, we, in our culture, we've taken God out of the equation. So now, if you want to be satisfied with life, you need to have 
stuff, right? It's directly linked to what we consume. It's, it's, it's baked in, right? It's, it's just the, the stories, the greatest stories are rags to riches, not the other way around. It's just assumed that you get a good life by having lots of stuff that undergirds our lives. It's a philosophy. It's a practice. Sometimes it's called consumerism, where we make these good things ultimate things. And so as you read Jesus' words and his confrontation with the rich young ruler, you realize that the conclusion is this. Wealth stuff is very dangerous to our spiritual health. You just can't get away from it. Consumption is very dangerous to our spiritual health. Now, how, what could is it, how, how is it so dangerous? What does it do? Well, can I give you five paths where it might lead us? Now, th- this comes mostly from the book of Proverbs, but, but five dangerous paths that our wealth might lead us if we're not careful okay if we're not careful first wealth has the power to make us proud wealth having lots of stuff has the power to make us proud solomon proverbs 30 give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. The readers of the book of Proverbs, when, when, when Solomon wrote that question, who is the Lord? They would have immediately thought back to Pharaoh, back, back in Exodus, when, when Moses came to Pharaoh's court and said, the Lord has said, let my people go. What was Pharaoh's response? Who is the Lord? That's the danger of stuff. It can build in that kind of attitude. Who needs God? You, you can sense the tone, can't you? Um, one, one preacher said, there is nothing like economic su- success to make you feel overcome. Number one, it, it has the power to make us proud. Number two, wealth has the power to fool us into a false sense of security. It can make us feel secure, even if we shouldn't. Money is just so easily seen in our day as the solution to all our problems. It's the place to turn for your security in life. That's the seduction Money says, if you have enough of me, you're totally secure and safe. But what does Proverbs say about that? Proverbs 11:4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Your money is worthless on judgment day. The day your heart breaks, no amount of money will console it. Betrayed by a friend, no amount of dollars can replace that friend. Death of a loved one, hit with a terrible disease, those, stuff, those things happen whether you have money or not. 
Steve Jobs died at 56. Money can become a false sense of security. Danger number three. Wealth has the power to magnify our self-absorption as we seek to prove our significance. Money can magnify our focus on self as we try to prove that we matter. See, we've had that problem trying to prove our significance since Genesis chapter 3. See, Genesis 3, as many of you know, is the story of the fall when Adam and Eve uh, had the first rebellion against God, their creator. And, and, And when they rebelled, when they followed the temptation of the serpent, he led them to say, you know what, we don't think God's way is the right way. We don't think identifying with the creator is the best way to live our lives. There's a better way to live our life. So they left God and they started looking for something else and we've been looking ever since. See, at that point, they doomed themselves and they've doomed us to spend a lifetime trying to prove our significance. Deep down, though, they knew at that very moment. After eating that apple, they knew that something was wrong. See, that was the first time they ever experienced the emotion of shame. Genesis 3. They they realized that they were naked, remember? They hid from God. They, They tried to use some leaves to cover up to no avail. We are all now radically insecure from the day we're born trying to prove our self-worth, trying to justify our, our existence. And what happens? It sends us into a frantic life of consumption. See, if I, if I can earn more, then I can spend more. Unfortunately, when I spend more, I have to earn more. It becomes a vicious cycle. Nothing compares to wealth in offering to fix this need we can feel important just because of the clothes we wear because of the house we live in because of who we hang out with and it becomes very toxic doesn't it you might be smart and making money and so your heart says well you're just smart our heart is desperate to believe that we matter to cover the shame of genesis 3 Money makes some of the best fig leaves. Number four, wealth has the power to seep into our relationships. So we're distracted from what's truly important. Stuff, right? It's very distracting. If we spend all our times focused on wealth, we we see everything with a cost-benefit analysis. When it comes to our decision-making, the bottom line, right? What gets me more? When it it comes into relationships, the bottom line, what do I get out of this? It becomes our primary motivation in life, even how we spend our time, how our families work. This seeps into every little bit, every little cranny. Finally, number five, wealth ultimately reveals and becomes our idol. 
wealth becomes or reveals our idol. That's definitely one of the themes we've heard this month because it's one of the most important lessons about wealth. Don't, again, don't miss Jesus' response. It's just amazing. When the rich young ruler, Jesus, you know, tells them all those different commandments, and the rich young ruler in verse 21 says, well, all these I have kept from my youth. Can't you just see the crowd at that point elbowing each other? <laughs> what? You've kept them all? I mean, there had to be somebody that went to high school with him that knew better. I mean, Jesus knew he hadn't kept them all from his youth. Why didn't he just hammer him? Because that wasn't the issue. It wasn't the sin. It was the sin behind the sin. One preacher has called Jesus the master heart surgeon. He, he can diagnose us perfectly. And the rich young ruler had a bigger spiritual obstruction. Jesus was going for his idols. And that's what he was pointing out by telling him to sell everything. See, the rich young ruler wasn't trusting in God. He was trusting in his treasure. And Jesus' command and the rich young ruler's response makes it very obvious, does it not? The rich young ruler had elevated this good thing. Oh, by the way, if you haven't heard me say it, I know Jason said it. There's nothing wrong with money. All right? There's nothing wrong with stuff. They are good things God gave us to enjoy. The problem is we take the good thing and we make it the ultimate thing. And guess what? When you do that, it always crashes because the ultimate thing was never made to take that kind of pressure. It will reveal our idols. So when it comes to money and wealth, the problem is not our stinginess. The problem isn't our overspending. The problem isn't our workaholism. The problem is a heart problem. It's an idol problem. Making a good thing an ultimate thing. That's the theme of the story. So, Scott, you say, how do we guard our hearts from making money an idol? I'm glad you asked. Can I give you four ways? Four suggestions. How do you guard your hearts when it comes to wealth and consumption and money? Number one, steward resources wisely. Steward resources wisely. That's a theme that we've had this, this month. and so it's, it's kind of a church word. Uh, so let me, let me redefine it for you. I'll, I'll paraphrase a guy by the name of Trevin Wax. Here's how he defined it, or paraphrase of how he defined it. Stewardship is how to cultivate the proper relationship to God's good gifts while existing in a culture that idolizes those same gifts. Stewardship is hard. Because all the while we're trying to keep God's good things, just good things, not ultimate things, we have a culture that shouts in our ear, this is what makes sense in life. This is, what, this is why you'll matter. So we have to constantly be on guard to steward those resources wisely. The, 
you know, the Bible, like I said, it doesn't say that stuff is wrong. In fact, in Proverbs, it says the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. I mean, it's okay to succeed economically, to work hard, and to prosper. Why could Solomon say that? Easy. Solomon read Genesis 1. You see, God, when he created his creation, and when he created man and woman, guess what? He gave us that creation both to work, that's called the creation mandate, and to enjoy. So when we enjoy stuff and things properly, in the right order, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's wise stewardship. The question isn't whether we own things. The question is how we own things. So number one, steward resources wisely. Oh, by the way, technically all that stuff we have, it's on loan. That's what James, brother of Jesus, said. He said in James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. First, stewardship. Number two, we need to learn to develop our heart muscles when it comes to guarding our hearts. We need to learn to develop our heart muscles. It's helpful to think of giving as a spiritual discipline. In fact, it is a spiritual discipline. How we use our money is a spiritual discipline. We, you know, we talk a lot in church about spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible and praying, coming to church. And, and what is a spiritual discipline? It is an exercise in heart formation. It's an exercise in heart formation. It develops the heart muscles. Spiritual disciplines never earn us anything from God. Okay, that'd be legalism. Okay, we're not trying to, get, to check off a checklist and get God to love us. He already loves us. We're doing those spiritual disciplines to form our heart to understand and see and sense and taste that love. Living simply in giving is a spiritual discipline. It's a way of life where we live within our means as the Lord provides. It's not as much what we own, it's how we own it. Recognizing the difference between wants and needs. Here's a question we often rarely ask. Can I live without this? Rather than the vicious cycle of our culture, obsession with owning and consuming, there's a virtuous cycle between living simply, living generously. And guess what? That frees you to enjoy what you have. Um, just this discipline of giving actually kind of goes hand in hand with the spiritual discipline of gratitude. Uh, the biblical practice of thanking God for what he's given us, which helps to wean us off our, that addiction to stuff. See, when, when we're grateful, we practice the, being grateful. It takes our attention from our stuff to God, what he's given us. We're not preoccupied with what we think we need or what we have. If you're wondering about this, let me give you some typical questions that might be helpful, okay, as you try to think about living a disciplined life when it comes to, to this. Number one, do I want things beyond 
my state and condition in life? Do I want things beyond my state and condition in life? Number two, am I willing, do I abuse and defraud others in the acquisition of goods? Which immediately shows that we're putting the good in front of the person. Are, are we tempted and willing to do that? Number three, am I continually discontent with what I have and always wanting Remember earlier when I said that the rich young ruler's culture had a baked-in assumption that the blessed life was the wealthy life? Uh, this is baked into our life. The idea that we need more to have a good life. Did you know that? Your, your whole advertising industry? Right here. Okay, I'll tell you a secret. Okay? This will ruin your day, but I'm going to tell it to you. I tell it to my class. I read it, so it's got to be true. The same people that designed the ads on your smartphone, you know those things that pop up, you know, magically ads for things you've talked about in your living room? Mm. You know those same people that design all those ads are the same people who designed slot machines for casinos? Mm. Feed me. Consumer culture, it's baked in. I need more. I need more. I need more. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. And he didn't have a smartphone. Now, I have a question for the day is, would he have one? <gasps> well, that's another sermon. But, no, I'm not going to go there. But seriously, right? We know this. We know this. We need to come to grips with that. Uh, four, do, uh, do I consume too much in a day when it could last many days? That's a first world problem, by the way. Ethan's going to a third world country. Guess what? They don't have that problem. Should I call it a problem? No. Five, how I've become, have I become proud in my possessions? My identity is found in my possessions. And, and six, am I, am I continually envious of others? possessions remember it's just baked in okay it's baked in third way to guard our hearts bless others extravagantly bless others extravagantly you know as we look at what jesus tells the rich young ruler we usually just stop you know at the first part he's verse 22 when he says sell all you have we forget, it. he adds, and distribute it to the poor. See, it, it's, it's about giving. Um, he isn't calling the rich young ruler to a life of poverty. He's calling to him to a life of generosity. There's a difference. There's a difference. Not a life of destitution, but a life of sacrifice. Um. Uh, a, a Christian writer named Matt Hurd uh, wrote something that, that stuck with me when it comes to this. He, he calls it plumbing, plumbing theology. He says, at any given moment, 
of our life as a Christian, we can be either a bucket or we can be a pipe. A bucket, what goes in, stays in. Right? A pipe, what goes in, flows out. And, and we're called in plumbing theology not just to receive what God gives us, but to share with what God gives us. See, there's an intake valve on top, God's love. But there's also an outflow valve at the bottom. The love we give to others, the love we give back to God. You need both of those valves to be working. They need to work in tandem. If they don't, the pipe gets clogged. And we all know what happens in the house when the pipes get clogged. So we could be taking in God's love. But if we're not giving it out, we just get all clogged up. We become stagnant cesspools of selfish living. We need to keep giving God's love. We need to keep giving God's gifts away. And guess what? As it flows through there, we're experiencing it in unique and intense ways. Does God stop loving us? Never. But our ability to experience that love is enhanced when we share it. That's why we're called to give generously, to share what he's given us. Love people. Love people. Blessed people. Bless people. We're pipes, not buckets. Finally, fourth way which is really the most important. If you want to shepherd and guard your heart when it comes to stuff, you need to find Jesus as your only true treasure. In fact, this is where we start. We need to find Jesus as our only true treasure. One of the, the cool things about gospel stories, gospel episodes, is that you have four writers and, and so sometimes what one writer describes uh, adds to what somebody else wrote. And, and so Mark, in, in chapter 10, uh, also wrote about the rich young ruler and, and this discussion. But he adds something Luke didn't put. Mark 10, 21, here's what, here's what he says. He said, Jesus, looking at him, the rich young ruler, Jesus, looking at him, Loved him. Loved him. Jesus wasn't scolding the rich young ruler. He wasn't shaming him. He wasn't trying to humiliate him, which he could easily have done. Jesus was looking into his heart and seeing how misdistorted and misaligned it was. And he loved him of his idolatry. See, his command to sell all that he had and give it to the poor, he wasn't trying to punish him. He was trying to free him. To free him from that idolatrous path. He saw him headed to destruction, believing that riches equal the good life, and he intervened because he loved him. Jesus offered the rich young ruler a love he could never purchase. You know, in the whole history of the human race, 
There's only been one person who could choose his life's circumstances before he was born. You ever think about that? All of us were born into our families and we had nothing to do with it. <laughs> you ever think if you had a chance that just, just based on life circumstances and stuff, uh, where you like to be born? <laughs> Does the name Gates ring a bell? <laughs> All right. I mean, but we didn't. Have, no, okay, yeah. Uh, we didn't have that choice. But there's one that did. He could choose the exact home, the exact circumstance he was born into. And this person, he chose to leave his heavenly throne to be born in a manger. This person, he chose to trade his angelic attendants to be born with a bunch of animals. <laughs> this person was the son of the king of the universe. And he chose to be born in a socially, economically marginalized couple in the middle of nowhere. The creator was born a baby. And then he died like a common criminal, placed in a tomb that wasn't even his. He chose that. Why? To give us a chance at heavenly treasure. So we who are poor could become spiritually rich. So those who live in the mangers of our day, no matter where they live in the world, could someday have an eternal home. So those who feel all alone could have a heavenly family. When we find him as our true treasure, that will free us from our dependence, and yes, our addiction to things, which will only fade away and be left behind. You say, Scott, I just, that's too strong. The pull's too strong. I can't, I can't do it. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in the final verse of our reading today. What's impossible with man is possible with God. See, that's our real security. It's the cross, which proves Jesus will do anything for you. And it's not just our real security, it's our real significance. This is what proves we matter, because the cross proves Jesus valued you enough to do anything. When you know that, money, <laughs> it's no longer our identity. It's no longer our security. Money is just money. It loses its divinity. And now you can give it away. Lord, thank you. Oh, wow. Nobody can say the Bible's irrelevant to life. Stuff that was written thousands of years ago doesn't have anything to do with 2021. Any of us looking at this story today of Jesus and the rich young ruler can't walk away saying that. This speaks right to our situation, right to our bank accounts, right to our hearts. Lord, 
thank you for the good things you give us. Oh, we live in a, a blessed situation right now. But there becomes temptation. There comes baked-in assumptions with that. There comes a pervasive idea that what we own proves who we are, which is totally contradictory to the gospel. And it's also totally crushing. Help us see the hope in Jesus' words to know that he looked at the rich young ruler and he loved him just as he looks at us today and loves us. May that be our treasure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.